Bonjour, John O'Duncan here, inviting you on a virtual road trip. You keen? You got snacks? Can handle unexpected setbacks? What's your air conditioning threshold? You like a sing-along? Do you know when it's time to cultivate conversation and when it's quiet time? Good. We're going to get along fine. So what are you waiting for? Hop on in. Let's roll. Progressive Rugby League. Well, it's been an especially long off-season for Rugby League in the UK. You could say it's been NRL standard. But those in the know, present company included no doubt, have used this break from normal transmission to get acquainted, okay reacquainted, you braggarts, with Rugby League's unsung domestic competition, the French Elite One. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what this special edition of the Progressive Rugby League podcast is all about. It's of course understandable that we focus on our own domestic scenes, but this habit has often resulted in us overlooking this underrated and sometimes forgotten rugby league institution. Yes, the French Elite One has had its ups and downs over the years, with maybe more of the latter in recent decades. But what can't be denied is the long and proud history of the French rugby league scene, dating way back to the 1930s, with a double exclamation point in the early 40s. And, let's not forget, France remains one of the few places in the world where you can earn a bit of a crust by playing rugby league football in that country's domestic competition. One common knock on the elite one is, yeah, but it's just a small southern French comp. Look, maybe. But a quick fire up of your local search engine will highlight the fact that you'll be clocking up many more miles getting around to see your elite one club than you would your English Super League team. For example, it's a five to six hour drive from Villeneuve to Avignon, two of the outermost elite one clubs geographically speaking while well, you could probably get from St. Helens to Hull in less than three. But today's not about comparisons, ladies and gentlemen. Today is about celebrating the Elite One, the domestic rugby league competition that refuses to go away, that exudes resilience and charm, and with a bit of luck and support from its big brothers in Oz and the UK, could yet become something even more significant in the years ahead. Yes, today we're taking a virtual trip around the Elite One to the grounds and towns its 10 clubs represent, Along the way, we'll meet some fine folk who have long been around the French rugby league traps, be it on the field, behind the mic, or with notepad in hand, to get a taste of this unique and hearty rugby league experience. Because sooner or later, when relative normality exerts itself on the world again, I'm guessing there's a few of us who wouldn't mind a bit of a road trip in a far-off place. So buckle up, folks, perhaps suspend disbelief for an hour, and join us for a tour around the French Elite One. Nah, I don't need a seatbelt, it's a virtual... All right. Okay, so according to Google Maps, the most efficient route to get around the 10 clubs is to start in the competition's easternmost town, Avignon. Now, eight of the 10 Elite One clubs are based in the southern Occitanie region. Avignon, situated in the Provence-Alpes-Côte d'Azur region, is one of two exceptions. So, on the way to Avignon... Who can help me out with this beautiful city? Well, who do we have here? Mike Rylance, author of the seminal The Forbidden Game and The Struggle and the Daring and long-time observer of the French domestic scene. Mike, good to see you. Bonjour. Yeah, bonjour, Jono. How's it going? 
Pretty well, thank you. Mike, I might need you to sit in the front here. Uh, I feel like I'm going to have to lean on you a fair bit on this trip. Hop in and enjoy yourself. Looking forward to getting your thoughts. Now, Mike, as we drive along, we're nearing our starting point in Avignon. But before we get there, can you tell me a bit about what it is that keeps you bringing back to the south of France? Obviously, it's a beautiful place, but the world is full of beautiful places. So, So why the south of France? Why wouldn't you want to go back to the south of France? It's got everything. And for us, my wife and myself, we have a place here anyway in Albi. So, you know, it's like a second home as far as we're concerned. I mean, you've just got everything, really. You've got the weather, you've got really nice people, generous people, very friendly people. And, of course, you've got rugby league as well in, in the southwest and southeast. So, you know, there's every reason to come here, as well as the cultural aspect of it as well. It, it's great. It's a second home, as I say. Yeah, and we'll be learning a bit more about that as we go along. So, Mike, as we cruise along the D2 to Avignon, let's talk quickly about the Elite One this year, the Elite One Rugby League competition. It seems to an outsider like me that this season, COVID hassles notwithstanding, has been a pretty positive year for Elite One. Seems to be a a more even comp, a few extra quality players on the field. How would you categorize the 2020-2021 season from what you've seen? Yeah, I think... Positive is, is the right word to describe it, although there's a, a downside to positive as well because a number of matches have been cancelled because of players testing positive for COVID-19, of course. That aside, the, the quality of the, the game has been pretty good. It's a shame, really, that more people can't see it because all the matches are being played behind closed doors. But then it's the only competition, the only professional rugby league competition that is actually up and running on this side of the world. So, you know, we've got to be grateful for that. And clubs are making a big effort mm. via YouTube and Facebook and so on to make matches available to their fans, even though the financial strain is quite considerable because they're not getting any income through the gates so they're having to rely on their sponsors and sources such as that in order to keep paying the players, which they're just managing to do. On the field, yeah, it's going pretty well, I would say, with the usual people at the top. That's to say that Kakasson, Lizio, Limou and Saint-Estève ruling the roost as they tend to do. But yeah, it's been a very interesting competition so far and helped by the fact that a number of full-time professional players from, well, Super League in particular, have joined the competition this year. And I'm thinking of people like from the Catalan Dragons, for example, like Mika Simon, mm. Luca Albert, and Sam Moa as well, who uh, your uh, Aussie fans will remember from Cronulla, I think, and uh, the Roosters. The Roosters, yeah. They won a premiership with the Roosters, yeah. So, yeah, it's looking, it's looking pretty good, I think. Yeah, good stuff. All right, Mike, so I see the signs now for Avignon. Now, I've been told many great things about this place. So, for you, what springs to mind when I say the word Avignon? Two or three things, actually. The first would probably be that capacity crowd for the World Cup match in 2013 against the Kiwis. Yes. And I think most of the crowd were expecting Sonny Bill Williams to be playing. In fact, he wasn't, but never mind. <laughs> they all seemed to <laughs> they all seemed to enjoy the game and went home happy despite a 48-0 defeat for France. Mm. So that shows the enthusiasm of people in the city and around for rugby league. Plus the fact that there are a number of small clubs around the area producing players for the upper echelons of the game. Mm. Lots of little clubs around. From a historic point of view, of course, it's it's great. Rugby league should be situated in a city like this, which is of such historic importance. 
you know, the Pope actually had it as his papal seat in the 14th century. And then, uh, of course, there's a famous bridge, the bridge which ends halfway through the middle of the river. It's also home to someone who's become a good friend of mine, Jacques Merquet, who is the only survivor of the 1951 tour to Australia, that famous groundbreaking tour. And he still uh, thinks a lot about the game, doesn't go to matches much, but loves watching State of Origin. He tells me. Right. So, yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, that's an a interesting point because Avignon, from what I understand, is in the, the region Provence, and I guess that's not far also from Marseille, which is the scene of that big parade that they had in 1951 after beating the Australians 2-1 in that test series where they had, what, 100,000 people cheering the, the team on? Yeah, yeah, that's right. When Marseille had a very successful club immediately after the war, And when the 51 team came back via boat to Marseille, they landed in the old port there and the streets of the city were absolutely thronging with people, hundreds of thousands of people there, out to meet them, to take welcome and all the rest of it. It was, it must have been some sight, actually. And they also used to fill the Olympique de Marseille football club stadium on a regular basis too. When I said fill, well, you know, they would get, 20,000, 30,000 people for big matches. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a hotbed for a considerable period of time. Okay, now, getting around the Elite One clubs will take something like 13, 14, 15 hours by car. Now, that's a long time to virtually spend with someone. So, Mike and I have agreed to give ourselves breaks from each other, you know, to keep things fresh, which works out well because I've got a few people I'm planning to catch up with. We're taking our first break from the road en route to Albi from Avignon. About halfway is the city of Montpellier, where I'm catching up with Pierre Carcou. Pierre writes French-flavoured columns in the UK's Rugby League World and Australia's Rugby League Review. He also brings an interesting perspective to the table as a French rugby league lover who didn't grow up with a game after spending his youth in the west of France. Bonjour et welcome to Montpellier. Bienvenue à Montpellier en Occitanie. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Now... Pierre, you spent a lot of your time growing up outside of rugby league heartlands and and you spent a lot of time in Montpellier in your past as well. Can you describe a bit about that part of the world? What's it like? How would you describe it? Montpellier? Yeah. Montpellier city, actually, it is the second largest uh, city in Occitanie after Toulouse. It's a city which is not far from the seaside, 50 minutes drive from the sea. It's a university town. It's a very modern town, 250,000 people, Mm -hmm. so quite a big city. And of course, there are some touristic places to visit. The downtown is wonderful, but it's also a very modern city, so there is a lot of modern parts. You can admire modern architecture, for example. Uh, Montpellier is probably not the place in France where we could find the traditional southern way of life. It's a city probably more open to the world than the rest of the area. So it's a very interesting city to visit because, of course, you can find a museum, you can find art. I know that Anglophones love to take a cafe at the cafe terrace. But also, it's also a very modern city. Frankly, it's really a place to visit for tourists. Okay. Now, is there much rugby league being played in Montpellier? Is this an area rugby league could cultivate? Actually, yes, yes. 
because we have two rugby league clubs in Montpellier. The first one is Montpellier 13. We call them the Red Devils, les Diables Rouges. Mm-hmm. And it's a club who was established in the 50s. So it's quite an established club in Montpellier. The men's team is playing uh, in the fourth grade. But they have uh, also a women's team. We play in, in second grade. And we won the championship a few years ago. Okay. So if you like, this club is more as a traditional, um, uh, represents the traditional rugby league in Montpellier. But we have newcomers too as well. We have the Montpellier Sharks located in a nearby city. This club are the newcomers, if you like. And they were very ambitious. They wanted to join Elite One directly because, you know, it's possible to join Elite One directly because there is no system of relegation and promotion. Sure. So they had to fill specification to join. But fortunately, at the last moment, it didn't work out. And before the, the pandemic, they were playing in, in the third grade. And is rugby league, do you think, growing in Montpellier? Or is it stagnated? Or is it going backwards? How would you describe how rugby league is going in that city? It's difficult because I would say on the level it's stagnant. But there are some kind of incubator in Montpellier. There are several rugby league schools Okay. on the area and so it's difficult I would say there is a future for rugby league in Montpellier unfortunately the level of the two clubs are stagnating now Pierre you were turned on to rugby league in the early years of Super League after seeing a Paris Saint-Germain game on TV what was attractive to you about the game and had you given much consideration to rugby league beforehand well actually to be honest before I watched this game uh, didn't know much about uh, rugby league. I knew that there was a jeu à 13, and I don't know if you know that pejorative word to describe the sports, unfortunately. I knew that somewhere in France, there was something called jeu à 13 played in the area of Perpignan, but I didn't have more information on it. So when I, I discovered um, rugby league on television by watching this game of Paris Saint-Germain, I was completely impressed because uh, I knew, of course, Rugby Union, because this is the major court in, in France. Mm-hmm. I, was, I said, whoa, that's fantastic. It's a clear game. There are some actions. There are no dead times, less scrimmages, less obscure action in it. Uh, rugby League. I found the, the game very clear, much simpler, because, uh, you know, in France, people uh, watch more Rugby Union, and it's almost a joke to discuss about the rules of the rugby union, people are, uh, don't agree about the interpretation of the rules, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> Whereas, in fact, in rugby league, things seem clearer and more simple, and I would almost say uh, more honest. Yeah, I know what you mean. Now, Pierre, does the fact that you didn't grow up with rugby league culture give you a greater affinity with the clubs from outside the traditional rugby league heartlands? I think so, because uh, I think now I've been following rugby league for 30 years. I think I consider myself still as an outsider to the game. And so I think, yes, indeed, I have affinity with these clubs outside the rugby league uh, heartland because actually Montpellier was one of these teams. Because maybe if after my presentation you may think that Montpellier is a traditional uh, place for rugby league, but actually... Montpellier is an outsider team. I mean, even now, people from Odd, people from Pays Catalan, I think consider Montpellier like aliens in rugby league because they are coming from a big city. So I think, yes, I have some affinity and much interest in this team that are playing out of the heartland. Yeah, that's great. 
And and what have you learned about the game over the years? Has has the place of rugby league in France taught you anything about French society? Uh, that's also an interesting question. Uh, thank you for asking. <laughs> Actually, I didn't learn much about the French society, but something were confirmed. I think that now in France, when it comes to sports, we French people, and so I including myself, we tend to be more consumers today rather than uh, sports fans. Or now we get used to have uh, entertainment environment around the games. Mm. So. I wonder if now uh, the French society has not lost a little bit the spirit of the sport and is now is more interested by the entertainment. Uh, last year I, I was to a union game with my father. There was music bands around the stadium. We even have a firework at the end of the game. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, it was very entertaining, but don't ask me what happened on the field, for example. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it's sport as fashion almost, rather than the concentration on the sport itself. Yes, exactly. And this is probably why French rugby league is suffering today, because the sport, the game in itself is, is very attractive. But now, maybe the French society, the public, is more used to have some entertainment environment. Mm. So comparing to football, to soccer and rugby union, uh, rugby league today has really problems to uh, to compete with, with this atmosphere. Mm. Now, Pierre, one final question. What do you think is the path for growing rugby league outside its core areas in France? Is there something specific that could improve its profile? Uh, the game has to be visible. We cannot reproach the French people not to know a game they have never heard about. Mm. The pandemic is uh, give us the opportunity to watch the games on the social network, which is an, a, an excellent thing. Mm. But before that, it's almost impossible to see images of the first great championships in France. Mm. If, of course, these images are not available for the rest of France, I don't see how the club who are playing outside of the rugby league in Atlanta can feel um, promoted by this action. Mm. Yes, the lack of visibility, it's easy to identify, but it's very hard to remedy, isn't it? Exactly. Now, if you're talking about specific, about what could help this uh, rugby league team inside the rugby league Atlanta, I think we have now a, a great opportunity. There is a, a new European competition called Euro Trace, uh, Euro 13, I suppose, in English, sorry. And strangely, in this competition, you, you will find many uh, teams of continental Europe and even from the British Isles, but not a single French team so far. And yet, I think that, for example, teams from Paris or a team, for example, the Club of Nantes, which is in the west of France, I think it would be a good idea to put them in these new competitions. And I feel these clubs will find rewarding to take part in this competition and it could bring attention also and that can be a solution to try to promote these remote areas because uh, Paris, for example, is eight-hour drive from the south. Paris is closer to the south of England than sometimes mm-hmm. to the south of France. The same for Nantes. So maybe if something specific has to be done, it will be in, in this direction. Mm. That's interesting. Okay, Pierre. So thank you so much for, for joining our virtual road trip of the Elite One. You're welcome. Um, hello to uh, hello to Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Progressive Rugby League.
Now, next stop, Albi. Now, it's a long drive to Albi. So, Mike, serenade me with a few top-line stats about the Elite One. Who have been the most successful clubs in the history of the domestic scene? Who have the most trophies? What have you got for me? Right. Well, there are two clubs at the top with most trophies over the years, Carcassonne and Villeneuve. Right. Villeneuve, because of their wins from the late 1990s to the 2000s, mm-hmm. they were the country's most successful club by some way. And Carcassonne had a phenomenal record after the game restarted in 1945. I think they appeared in eight out of nine finals mm-hmm. from 1945, winning most of them. So they are the big clubs, and still are to some extent. I mean, Carcassonne are way up there this season, and Villeneuve not far behind. So yeah, they're the ones. Very interesting. Now, Mike, as we approach Albi along the A75, I want to share with you my brief flirtation with Albi. Now, as with many flirtations in my past, this didn't go so well. Now, Mike, as you know, in July 2019, Big Al, my girlfriend and I visited the south of France. Now, one day, and we've mentioned this a million times, so I won't dwell, we were lucky enough to visit Sylvain Houlet's farm, the coach of Toulouse Olympique in Humigus. Now, as we were leaving, he was quizzing us about our plans where we'd been, what we were doing, etc. He said, have you been to Albi? Uh, we said, no. He said, well, you've got to go to Albi, which all sounded great. But we were in a bit of a bind. We were already running late to meet our Airbnb host for our stay in Blagnac. And she'd traveled some way from her actual home to meet us, to let us into that apartment. There was a language barrier. You know, I blame myself. So it was a bit of a dilemma. So, you know, do we swing by Albi and ruin our host's day or do we limit the damage and hot foot it to Blagnac? Now, Big Al, he wanted to see Albi. I was worried about keeping our host waiting. My girlfriend was on the fence. As I'd made the booking, the decision was left with me and Mike, we never made it to Albi. I blinked. I was too worried about my flawless Airbnb record and not worried enough about living. Now, Big Al, of course... Uh, he's never forgiven me. <laughs> I've never forgiven myself. It still keeps me up at night. And then last year, I, I interviewed the great Rodolf Pires from BN Sports, who is originally from Albi, and that made my yeah. feelings of regret so much greater. It wasn't necessarily what he told me about Albi. It was just the way he said it. Albi. Albi? Albi. It triggered me, and it still does to this day. So anyway, Mike, <laughs> that story has got yeah. us to this lovely town, Albi. What do you have for us about this town? Well, first of all, I appreciate that that was a tough call to make, but, uh, you know, on balance, I think you made the wrong one there. Um, Although I I do appreciate the constraints you were under, but really, how could you miss seeing this World Heritage Site? Actually, that's become a bit of a problem, really, UNESCO World Heritage Site, because I'm used to being able to drive into town and park Mm -hmm. whenever and wherever I like. Since this happened, you can't park anywhere. Right. Um, Mm. There is also the fact that Albi is the birthplace 
place of Toulouse-Lautrec. Um, right. And there is a wonderful museum there dedicated to his work, the biggest collection of Toulouse-Lautrec's work anywhere in the world. But it's just such a beautiful place. You know, everything is brick-built. Brick-built is something quite different in Albi, as in Toulouse, which you will know. Mm. It's a very warm-coloured sort of brick, very thinly constructed, which gives a wonderful glow in the sunshine. It's quite amazing. And that, that is the architecture of, of Albi. It's, exactly. it's a great place to be. Well, yeah. regrets. I've got a few. <laughs> yeah, and they play rugby league there as well. What more can a man want? They do. You know? What's the team in Albi? What are they called again? The Albi... Well, these days they call them the Tigers, but right. the old name is the, the Racing Club d'Albi. I see. Racing Club, in other words. There you yeah. go. Progressive Rugby League. Look, while we're in Albi, I just couldn't resist getting in touch with Albi's favourite son, a title I've bestowed upon him. I'm talking about none other than Rodolphe Pires from Being Sports in France. Rugby league commentator extraordinaire and one of the nicest guys you could virtually meet. I wonder what he thinks about my lost opportunity to get to know the beautiful city of Albi. My story, I never made to Albi. <laughs> oh, well, I understand the dilemma. But actually, yeah, you should have been to Albi. It's, it's a wonderful place. Yeah. Now, Rodolphe, can you describe the, the feeling you get when you return to Albi after a considerable time away? Well, I'm a lucky guy because I leave half my time of the week in Paris and the other half in Albi where my kids are. Mm-hmm. And it's like when you're young, you know, when you are 18, 19 or 20 years old, everything seems too small for you. So you dream of a big city. That's what I did. I was living in Albi and I wanted to live in a bigger place. I wanted to see big buildings and bigger bars, bigger stadiums. <laughs> you dream of something big. That's when you're young and you live this nightlife when you're young in Paris, which used to be fantastic at that time. And then comes a time where you grow old and then you say, wow, hmm, all this frenzy, I, I don't think I can take it anymore. So you are happy to go back to where you come from and say, oh, I enjoy the calm. This city is so cool and it's easy to live. Mm-hmm. This is exactly the feeling I get when I come back to Albi. I have a special bond, of course, because it's my hometown. And when I come back, I'm, I'm happy to live in a city where the vibe is much more the vibe I, I need at my age. And I have some trouble sometimes to, to adjust to the Parisian vibe because it's not the same vibe I discovered when I, mm-hmm. when I came to Paris in the, in the early 90s. So it's a matter of uh, comfort. When I come back to Albi, good memories. When I started my life in Paris, I had a very tiny apartment and I was so happy with it. And I, when I fly back to Albi and I, I'm in a bigger house now and I say, wow, you've been living in tiny places with a bunch of stressed people and it's so good to come back to a, to a normal life. And that's exactly what it is, normal life, normal people. And of course, people I love. So yeah. comfort when I come back to Albi. And how do you describe Albi to your your colleagues and friends in Paris? Well, I always tell them I can tell you everything about the city, everything you can find on the internet and books or wherever. But you have to come and you have to live it for yourself. I wouldn't say it's an experience like if it was something incredible. It's like any beautiful city. But Mm -hmm. I would say that you have to come because there are plenty of things to see in Albi and around the city. The city itself, well, it's stunning if you love the colours, if you come. Well, I was in Albi this morning and mm. the light was beautiful because we're in the south of France. Light is really different. The colours are different from the one we can find in Paris. And oh. I'm still astonished by what I see, even if I live there, when the colours turn orange and pink at the end of the day. It's oh. beautiful. 
And I always tell my friends and my colleagues in Paris, you have to. And some did it. They came in the summertime, of course, in our summertime when the school is over and they came with the kids mm -hmm. and they spent a couple of days in Albi and around Albi. And they loved it. I said, it's a stunning space because the city is beautiful. The color red is the dominant color. Mm -hmm. We have something like you will never find elsewhere. We have the biggest uh, brick cathedral in the world. It's the world's biggest brick cathedral. And it was built uh, in the 13th century. And we also have the largest painting cathedral in Europe. It's an amazing thing to see so vivid memories of the uh, 13th century. And all around the cathedral in the ancient city, what we call the Old Albin, Everything is beautiful. The walk, you can spend the afternoon walking into streets that remind you how rich the past of this region was and how beautiful it is to still have a quiet walk with the family, kids, and enjoy the sun because it's quite sunny, quite hot yeah. in the summer. So my colleagues and friends in Paris, they know that I'm quite a, a good ambassador for my city, <laughs> but they rely on me. I mean, the one who relied on me, they were not disappointed when they came. They really enjoyed it. Yeah, really. fabulous. And do you have any tips for, for visitors to Albi that only a local could give? Oh, oh, I wouldn't say tips, but I would say places I like, and I, I would say even more places I love mm. all around the cathedral, just walking in those streets, walking down through the river Tarn, which is, uh, it's, it's beautiful. We have two main bridges and the most beautiful of those two bridges is the oldest one, what we call the, the old bridge. Mm -hmm. And it's like walking back in time mm -hmm. and you can easily imagine how things could be in the middle age in Europe and around the year 1000, for instance, mm -hmm. because you... It's a very, very old city, and I like to walk on the banks of the river. I have this, uh, I live in the center uh, of the city, and uh, I walk through the banks, and I uh, come up close to the cathedral, and then I cross those uh, ancient cities, and it's, it's, it's a short trip, but every time I take it, I still have the same feeling, and I because I can be all by myself. You can meet no one. <laughs> and finally, you can find yourself surrounded with people in, in the Place du Vigan, which is the uh, the main plaza of the city. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, very, very much related to the river. And all the people who live in Albi will tell you that they have this special bond with the river. Mm. The river splits the town in two, and the banks are beautiful in the summer. And you can also rent a flat bottom boat and because it used to be the way people were carrying goods for a long, long time in the Middle Ages, they were carrying it all the way through uh, bigger, bigger rivers and then to the ocean afterwards. And uh, a lot of goods coming from the ports in, in the western part of France were traveling through those rivers and through those flat bottom boats. Mm. And yeah, you can do that. It's beautiful, what we call the Pont Vieux. Pombieu Bridge, the old bridge, mm. you cross it until the uh, what we call the Collegiate, the Church of Saint Salvi, which is beautiful. It's like a, a spaceship because you walk in the street. And what I would recommend to people is to do this: not to go to the cathedral first. You have to cross the street, walk through the streets of Albi, those really, really old streets, mm. and then finally you bump into a, a spaceship because the cathedral is is standing there and it's huge right. like i said it's the biggest brick cathedral in the world 
Mm. And it's really, really impressive. We have buildings still in use in Albi related to the 11th century. Mm. So two centuries before the building of the the cathedral. When you think about that, when you think about what we're doing today, all the modern constructions, there's no way what we're doing today can last for yeah. or a thousand years. No, no yeah. way. Unbelievable. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, that insight. Rodolfo, would you consider Albi a, a still a rugby league city? How would you rate the strength of the game in, in Albi in the current day compared to when you were growing up? Well, it's a tough question. I flew back from Paris on Sunday, but I flew back too late for the game. Albi played against Avignon and they lost, uh, they lost the game. We are, we are members of this small club of pioneers of the game mm. because back in 1934, Albi was uh, one of the very first club registered to the French rugby league. Mm. And so it's been and it is still uh, a rugby league city. We have to face the rugby union, of course, club, which uh, used to be in first division, what they call top 14 mm. in France, mm. rugby union. And nevertheless, rugby league was still living and kicking. Mm-hmm. But if you come back to uh, the 30s, the 50s, game was big, and even in the 70s. But the first title, I guess, was 1938 for RB. And mm-hmm. then back in the 50s, French champion and champions again in the 70s, in the late 70s, 77, uh, which is one of the first memory I have from the game mm. in 1977. And yeah. It's been part of the culture of the city. And it's not a surprise because everything is related to this, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with what we call the uh, Albigeois and the crusade against the Albigeois. Okay. Uh, no, I'm not. It was uh, some sort of a religious movement in the Middle Age. Yeah. People were not very fond of the uh, Catholic religion and they started having their own. And it's not not been very fun for them afterwards mm. because the church uh, the church killed them all, and uh, that's mainly why they built a so impressive uh, cathedral in Albi. Just to say, right. we're here and we rule now. Mm-hmm. And rugby league is is the same, and it's not just for Albi. In all this uh, south of France region, it's always been a, a land of uh, heretics, mm. I would say, <laughs> and. Uh, Rugby league is the same. You try to kill it once, twice, but it will never die. And that's mainly why, if you look at the map of rugby league in France, Mm. it's always been in... Rugby league is very present and vivid in places where it's been a a struggle against the power coming from elsewhere, from the north particularly, and uh, from the central power. And uh, we are... Rugby league people difficult to kill, <laughs> and we resist. Even if we are outnumbered, we have to say. But what brings joy to me, I have to say, and hope, is when I see the, the kids still playing league mm-hmm. in Albi, and and also the people in the in the stands when you go to the stadium. You won't feel forty thousand people stadiums in France. We all know that with rugby league, but. I listened to a podcast you, you did a few weeks ago with my colleague journalist in, in England, oh, yeah. and yeah, and we do have the same problem. But what I see with a lot of hope, uh, in Albi is all these young kids in the stands cheering for the club, and this gives me the hope that we 
we're not dead yet. Mm. And if we're not going to be champion this year, I believe, but we're still a rugby league city. And there's always been in the town two separate people, the one who uh, were attending rugby league and the one were attending rugby union. And we have, just like in England, more or less the same people watching league and, and union in France. And, and even in our cities, small cities like Albi, yeah, it's the same. Right. And we have our own crowd, our own people, our own supporters, our own funding. Yeah, rugby league is a whole different game. Yeah. And who would be considered Albi's biggest rival in the elite one? Because we pretty much look alike. We have a wonderful city as well. <laughs> and we've been here for a long, long time in, in rugby league. As far as I remember, I guess we are the second club registered just after the uh, Tres Catalan, uh, I believe. Okay. But I would say Carcassonne because yeah. we are, we look like each other. It's a stronghold of rugby league and, and we share the chance to live in a beautiful city, I would say. Yeah. And of course, Rodolphe, yourself and Louis Bonnery were the voices of Elite One for several years commentating uh, for French television. I think it was from the early 2000s. Uh, is there a, a most memorable moment for you from your time commentating on the Elite One? Yeah, we had the chance to do that and we, we had the chance to travel all around rugby league country, mm. I would say, in France. <laughs> uh, from uh, villeneuve sur nord to Avignon, from Toulouse to uh, Lyon, Villeurbanne. Mm. And it was, uh, yeah more than 20 years ago and it was a great time and we were showing games on Monday nights right. and I remember we were commentating a game in Saint-Gaudens and it's, it was not the usual stadium where the club plays because it was a televised game we we had to move elsewhere right. and it was uh, you feel that you were in the, in the countryside and uh, we were in the stands Louis and I and there were it was on a Monday night and to be honest there were 25, 30 people in the stadium, not much. And I remember commentating the game and a guy came and it was around 9 o'clock at night and we were working and the guy called me, he said, hey, hey. And I, I was commentating the game live and so I, I took off my headgear and I said, what, what do you want? Are we, we're working here. And he said, what's all this? What's all this mess? Because the guy was uh, walking his dog and, and he was... <laughs> He was not happy because we were commentating a game in, in the exact place where he was walking his dog every night. <laughs> so he was pissed. That's hilarious. Um, one more question for you, Rodolf. Were some of the, the favorite short trips from Albi that you like to, to take for a, a day trip when you're, when you're in town? Oh, oh, there are many. There's one I like. It's not far away from, from Albi. It's about 10 minutes, but... Once again, you travel uh, in time. I told you that the river is fundamental. In mm. the, and if, if you follow the course of the river, you will get to a place called Ambiale. It's in the Tarn Valley. Okay. And Ambiale is in, a, is in a, some sort of a peninsula. And you have um, meanders of, the, oh, of yeah. the, the river. And in this valley, you will find a, a place extraordinary called the Priory of uh, Our Lady of the Oder. Okay. The Priory of the Notre Dame d'Auder. It's beautiful. It was uh, built in the 11th century. The view is beautiful from the Priory. You have the all this view on the valley, and it's beautiful. And then there's a tree there. It's a beautiful tree. It's not because it, it's a spectacular tree. It's a quite ordinary, I would say, tree. But 
you have to know the legend of this tree. It comes from a knight coming back from the crusade uh, back in the year 1000. Wow. And the guy brought with him from the Holy Land a tree. He planted it there and everybody who was, uh, they were not able to go to the to Holy Land. So they came here and you could take a piece of this tree. So you didn't have to, to do all the, the pilgrimage. So you could take a, a branch of this tree and you would take it back home. And this tree has been here for more than 1,000 years. Wow. And you can still see it. And uh, every time I go to LBI, I go there, I walk up to this priory and I look at this tree and I say, well, you come from Jerusalem, you come from Saint-Jean-d'Acre, Mm-hmm. And you're here now, and people come to see you and take a piece of you uh, right? uh, more than a thousand years. So wow. I love to I love to go to that place, and it helps you to to stay grounded. I would say <laughs> that's a that's that's a beautiful story. Well, uh, Rodolfo, I have to get back to the car with Mike's, but thank you for sharing a piece of your Albi with us today. Merci beaucoup. Avec plaisir. Okay, so that's Aldiv, very good. Now, next stop is the big city lights of Toulouse, the biggest city in the Elite One, the capital of Occitanie. How would you describe Toulouse to a, a budding rugby league traveller? Well, Toulouse has a special place in the history of rugby for a start because it calls itself the capital of rugby. But I think most people who use that phrase mean rugby union because yeah. of Stade Toulousain, which is France's most successful rugby union club, historically speaking. The big thing, though, is that the Toulouse Olympique, that Souvent's team, mm. moved in with Stade Toulousain in their renovated stadium on a contract, on a basis that gives them a virtual equal share with Stade Toulousain. And it is Stade Toulousain's ground. It's their privately owned ground, which is quite unusual for France. Mm. Most places are owned by the municipality. So that was a huge, huge move for Toulouse, and it's just to be hoped they get into Super League to make it all pay off, yeah. you know? But yeah, Toulouse is the biggest city in, in League One. It's a, quite a wealthy city as well. It's got the aerospace, high-tech industries. And the architecture is, is very similar to Albi. That's to say this, this brick-built buildings in the centre. It's a historic city too, you know, it goes back a long, long way to the Counts of Toulouse, who tolerated the Cathars, much to the annoyance of the northern nobles and the Pope himself, who uh, sent people down from the north to put down this uprising. That explains, to some extent, the kind of uh, antipathy between north and south as well. Mm. To some extent, it continues to this day. That's a a really interesting overview. I, I know when we visited Toulouse, we came from... Barcelona, uh, and we went through Perpignan yeah. before we got to Toulouse. And yeah. Toulouse was the first place where we actually felt like we were in France. When we were in Perpignan, we didn't really notice the difference to where we were previously the previous week in the sort of Barcelona and, and that region. It's still, we had to remind ourselves that we were yeah. now in France. But Toulouse, once we got there, okay, we really saw the difference and felt the difference too. Yeah, I can understand that. Progressive Rugby League. Now, as I mentioned to Mike a couple of years ago, we were in Toulouse, and while we were there, we actually asked Toulouse Olympique imports and now stalwarts Mark Killer-Corella and Jono Jonathan Ford about their tips for travellers to Toulouse. 48 hours in Toulouse. What's your recommendation? 
Go get a cinnamon roll from Canopy Coffee <laughs> Shop. Yeah, it's a good coffee shop. Good call. Um, probably just actually sunset on the Garon. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty good at the moment. Now that you've got the um, Ferris wheel there. Yeah. Get a nice bottle of red. Uh, Great tips. And we did neither of those things, incidentally. But when we get back there, straight to that coffee shop and straight onto that Ferris wheel. All right, back to it. Okay, so for our next stop, we are edging our way out of Occitanie for the second time to visit villeneuve sur lot in Norville-Aquitaine. Now, it's around a two-hour drive from Toulouse, but you were saying to me off-air, Mike, that these regions are actually quite modern constructs, aren't they? Do, do locals identify with these newer boundaries? Well, not really. Nouvelle-Aquitaine is quite close to what the region used to be anyway because it, it was Aquitaine and has been throughout history. Occitanie also has a historic background too, but it covers a slightly different area from what is known by the modern name. It, it all happened when the regions of France were reduced in number. For example, Occitanie is made up of Languedoc-Roussillon uh, plus Midi-Pyrénées. So two right. largest regions were put together to make one mega-region, mm-hmm. if you like. Though people in Roussillon, that's to say Pepillon, weren't too happy about it because uh, they regard themselves as Catalans and the idea of being Catalan wasn't included in the name Occitanie, obviously. Right. Anyway, they put up with it. They yeah. put up with it. They complained, but, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, well, we're in Villeneuve now, so how would you describe yeah. Villeneuve? Right. Well, Villeneuve is a town you could describe as a, a Bastide, which goes back again a long, long way to the 12th, 13th century, no, 13th century. But in rugby league terms, it's famous for being the birthplace of French rugby league because at the time, 1934 we're talking about, mm. Jean Gallia, of course. the founding father of French rugby league, he was playing rugby union there and then he got banned from playing rugby union and started the venture of rugby league with other key people from that period, like there was a phenomenal player pre-war called Max Rosier. Mm. The current stadium is named after him. He was one of these guys who could turn a match. He was head and shoulders above most players of the period. He could drop a goal from 50 yards to win the games and stuff like this, you know, mm. as well as being very strong, great vision of the game and so on. He was one of the, the great rugby players of all time. And as I said before, in modern times, Villeneuve has been one of the most successful clubs in uh, Elite One from 1990s up to about 2003. Mm. And they were helped by various overseas players. Two of them come to mind. One was Cavill Hugh, Queenslander, and the other one was Stephen Plath, who I think yeah. came from Manly. Or okay. Anyway, they both had a big influence on the team's success at the time. And Paul Sirenen, yeah. did Paul Sirenen play for Villeneuve as well? Paul Sirenen came along later as well, mm. yeah. Uh, he was probably the highest profile of the lot, along with Quentin Pongia. So they had they, they had plenty of money to splash around in those days. Uh, <laughs> but their demise in 2003 came about because they lost out in the battle to join Super League. Right. They lost out to the Catalans. Mm. And the Catalans were allowed to take four of their key players. Right. Um, one of them was Laurent Fresinus, who then went on to coach the mm. Catalans. Uh, plus three others. So uh, Fred Bonke was in all. So they lost the nucleus of their team and didn't really recover for for quite some time after that. 
That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about doing this show when we were doing the weekly show was we'd have listeners sort of write in about random facts. And we had, I think it was a listener, Paul, from perhaps the Gold Coast, where he, he told us about this tournament that happened in the late 90s. I don't know if you're aware of it. Uh, the Tres Tournois, <laughs> which featured <laughs> Villeneuve. Tournois, yeah. Yeah, which featured Villeneuve. And I think Villeneuve ended up winning it with Paul Zirinen. Uh, with a few other English clubs and a few French clubs, which those sorts of tournaments seem to be quite common back in the day. But anyway, interesting stuff. Yeah, that, that is absolutely true. The final was in Toulouse. I was there. And coach was Grant Dury, another Aussie playing the front row yeah. at that time, and then went on to coaching rugby union afterwards. But okay. yeah, they did win it, but it was a bit of a struggle. <laughs> yeah. Now, Villeneuve and Avignon are the two clubs that you consider maybe the furthest from the hub, the concentration of rugby league clubs and towns from the Elite One. Does the distance these teams have to travel and the space between these clubs and the other teams, does that make it easier or harder for them to survive or even flourish? Well, it doesn't make it easier necessarily, but you tend to find that clubs like Avignon and Villeneuve have a nucleus of junior clubs around them Mm. who feed through their better players and so there is a kind of rugby league community around the area I can think of several clubs around Avignon several around Villeneuve which do exactly that but yeah I mean if you're talking then about the concentration of clubs that there are in the order département Carcassonne Limoux Lésignon three top clubs and then loads of feeder clubs around then obviously it's like a different situation for, sure. for Villeneuve and Avignon yeah yeah okay uh, so that's that's Villeneuve so we're back on the road now a uh, two and a half hour journey to our next club our next destination Saint-Gordin so while we're on the way to Saint-Gordin any tips for driving in France uh, obviously we've been on the road for a, a little while now but any tips for people who are thinking of doing a driving holiday in the south of France anything people need to know yeah well you will already know that the French people do like to drive fast and at the same time they kind of like to pretend that you're not there yeah so if you're kind of driving along a country road and there doesn't appear to be anybody in sight you know you're doing a reasonable speed and then suddenly in the rear view mirror you'll find this clapped out Renault or Citroen piling up behind you and as it passes you as undoubtedly it will because uh, French people love to overtake you'll probably find it in some little old lady who you know just had her foot down and uh, and couldn't bear to to struggle along behind you in some in some foreign or hired car you know plus the fact that in addition to driving fast and pretending that you're not there if you hang around on the slip road while trying to get on the motorway if you just hang around there you will never ever get on the motorway because people don't move over for you they just you know expect you to do what they do in other words put your foot down and (laughs) hope for the best (laughs) that's uh, that's the only way to drive Um, plus the fact that the further south you get the closer to spain the more of a free-for-all it becomes. I don't know why that is, but maybe it's something to do with the Latin temperament. Yeah, okay. A, yeah. a course in uh, assertive driving might be in order before you get to the south of France, perhaps. That's exactly right. And making sure, of course, that you're driving on the right side of the road, not the left. Yes, but, thank you. But we already know that. Of yeah. course, yes. Now, um, Mike, San Gordon. This is one club and, and one place that I 
haven't heard much about really over the past few years of my education of French Rugby League. Have you had much experience there? I've only been there once, to tell you the truth. No, twice. You would be heading towards the Pyrenees. If you were subbed out from Toulouse, you would be heading in a sort of southwest direction towards the Pyrenees. And this is one of those clubs that goes back to the 50s rather than the 30s when it sprang into being. A bit like Limoux or Saint-Estève or there's an elite one club, Vieux-Franche-de-Rouen. They all started up at that time, mm -hmm. usually on the initiative of a small group of people, or in this case, a, a single family. But they were very successful. In the 70s, they appeared in five championship finals, I think it was. Mm -hmm. The one player that probably will be known above all is the winger Serge Marcelon, okay. who is famous for scoring a length of the field try. He started out behind his own line against New Zealand in the 1970 World Cup, and it's a try oh. that's gone down in World Cup folklore. He formed a great partnership, centered partnership with Michel Moulinier in the France team as well. They have had their successes in the relatively recent past, but it's, it's just a an unusual stronghold of the game. It's not got many other rugby league clubs around apart from Toulouse, which is a good uh, three quarters of an hour drive away. Mm -hmm. So they do well to survive, as they certainly do do. Yeah, that's very interesting. Now, next stop, Mike, we go to Limoux, which is a two-hour trek yeah. for us. Now, we're obviously doing a lot of driving and, and heading along a lot of highways to get to our Elite One destinations as, as soon as possible. But away from the highways that we're taking, are there any short trips you'd recommend while you're in one of these towns or if you're in the, the south of France, away from the destinations where we're going to today? Well, if we're driving towards Limoux, there are lots of little places you can stop off at on the way. For example, if you're in the Aude, which is where we're heading for, mm. around Carcassonne, Lésion, Limoux, just outside Carcassonne, there's a little village called Montolieu, Okay. which is a village full of booksellers um, oh. and it's known only for that you know every other building appears to be a bookshop second-hand wow. bookshop you know and it's a kind of magnet for people who uh, like to buy second-hand books and uh, it's just one of these quirky little places you know that you find dotted about but living on Limoux are interesting places in themselves particularly Limoux because That's another of these places that has a central square with stone arcades around it, a bit like Villeneuve. Mm -hmm. And there are cafes all around, of course, a bit like Carcassonne for that matter as well. But this is famous for two reasons apart from rugby league. One is that here they make a wine called Blanquette de Limoux, which okay. is a sparkling wine and is said to predate even Champagne. And it, and it is... It's a beautiful wine, beautiful sparkling wine, wow. made from Chardonnay grape, I believe. And also the carnival here, which is the longest lasting carnival probably in the world because it goes on for three months. Right. Um, it would be on right now. I don't know what, in what form it is with the current situation, but normally it would be on right now in February or sometimes it even starts in January and goes on for a whole three months with <laughs> parades and all kinds of things and Fabulous. people sitting out on the main square having a drink of course Blanquette is yeah. a favourite drink there and yeah it's a really good place to be and in Lemur their home is it the Grizzlies are they Lemur? yeah they are yeah, yeah. 
So I'm sure they're heavily involved in the carnival season, getting their own floats, yeah. <laughs> what have you. To what extent, I really don't know, except that their colours, black and red, are the same as people tend to dress up in for these parades that go around the middle of town. Okay. You know? Yeah, they have troubadours and all kinds of things going on there. But yeah. Limu are doing quite well too, you know, and have been doing for a number of years. Mm. A great rivalry exists between these three fairly local teams, or as local as you're likely to get in France anyway. Yeah. Great. Well, the trips are getting shorter now, so less time for small talk. And now we're, we're at like a 30-minute drive to Kakazon. And as you've sort of alluded yeah. to, now this is a town with some history, including rugby league history, isn't it? Yeah, it is. In general terms, it calls itself the heart of the Cathar country, which we talked about before. Hmm. It's the capital of the Aude département. And if you're looking at rugby league history, this is the team that dominated rugby league in the post-war period, in particular with his big star, Krieg Bear at full-back, yeah. chiming into the three-quarter line and scoring tries, kicking goals from all over the place, and the big sensation of the 51 tour as well, of course. Yeah. But from a, a general tourist point of view as well, it's a fabulous sight to approach Carcassonne from the motorway, where you see the walled city mm. suddenly appearing. And it has to be said that it was rebuilt over a period of time in the 19th century by an architect who wanted to do things his way. So you'll see certain uh, features there like turrets and so on, which wouldn't have been typical of the period, but it does look a magical place. Uh, Very popular, very, very popular with tourists. Uh, I think it's to be avoided really uh, in the the summer. Well, Uh, I mean, funny you say that, Mike, because we went straight there in the middle of summer a couple of years ago. And uh, look, it was fantastic. But yes, perhaps we could have avoided it. It was a a long, hot day. But uh, yeah, I mean, definitely worth checking out, that's for sure. If you want something a bit quieter, then there's there's the Canal du Midi, which runs by Carcassonne, where people who have money to spend um, hire canal boats and go pootling along the canal under the shade of the plane trees Mm. in summer, which I'm told is a very pleasant thing to do. Lovely. Yeah. And, and of course, you you go into the normal, the new Carcassonne town, and there's rugby league hospitality to be had at the, is it the Shea Felix? This is a cafe that Big Al and I visited uh, when we went there, and I think you've been yeah. there many times, I'm guessing. Shea Felix is an important landmark in Carcassonne and in the rugby league world because it's the third generation of the family that owns it now, that runs it now. The, the Felix comes from Felix Bergers, who was a player who came to Carcassonne when they first started up just before the war and went on to coach the club and is uh, an important figure in the history of the of the game there. Mm. He started up this, this cafe bar in the 40s and it's, it's still there to this day. And if, you can't really go in there without coming across somebody connected with rugby league in the town or elsewhere who happens to drop by for a talk about something or other yeah. because talks about the rugby league club are a constant source of, of entertainment for people in, in Carcassonne yeah. as well as more important discussions going on between club officials down there as well so yeah it's a place you need to go really yeah and yeah. you've been kind enough to share some, some nice photos of, of you catching up with various rugby league luminaries in, in the, the Shea Felix and that's I suppose that's the beautiful thing about this is that obviously you've written with such detail and insight and precision about the history of French rugby league, but there's clearly a personal story that's behind all that, which is just lovely uh, to sort of witness and to, to hear about as well. 
Yeah, well, the number of times that you know we've been in there and always been made very welcome by Jean Cabron, who is the son-in-law of uh, Felix Berger's, who passed on the running of it to his daughter and her husband. Mm. But people drop in just to speak to Jean. He's a very nice fellow. Yeah. I'm much involved in the game still. Yeah, it's uh, it's really nice to know that you can drop in there for a coffee or whatever and be bound to meet somebody or even just look at the things on the walls, you know? That's right, um, yeah. Because there are plenty of things to see there too. Yeah, yeah. so when, when we went in there, Big Al was, he decided to wear every single piece of rugby league paraphernalia that he had um, and just to sort of make it clear that he knew about this cafe and he wasn't just some random that he, he loved rugby league and so and I was like always telling just you know settle down but then he'd sort of like you know, go up to the the wait staff and say you know we're, we love rugby league <laughs> and then um, basically they were so kind to us so I was like big Al please sit down but they were so kind to us that they sort of brought out the, the family and sort of introduced the, the kids who were playing at the local clubs to us, and we sort of had photos. So it was a very, very nice sort of homespun feeling. Yeah, yeah. Because the kids who play are their fourth generation now. Yeah. I think the eldest is, is actually called Felix as well. Yeah, yeah. There you go. It's great to see that kind of continuity. Because rugby league in France does tend to go in families quite a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd be surprised at the number of players in Elite One who have uh, forebears who have also played the game. It's mm. amazing. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and just before we leave Kakasson, would it be safe to say that they have among the, the biggest following in terms of crowds? Do they attract the biggest crowds in Elite One? Yeah, except that at the moment everything is behind closed doors. So of we, course. We, <laughs> we don't really know what's going on there. Even they, though, were slightly overshadowed by the Rugby Union Club, which got promoted to the professional second division. And this shows something about the game in France as well, that they play out of the same stadium as well and were getting bigger crowds when they were in that division than the Rugby League Club, which was... Rugby League people were throwing their hands up in in horror, Mm. but then they realised that they'd been very complacent about putting their game on show, you know, marketing the game, promoting sure. it. Yeah. Um, because of the of Rugby Union's higher national profile, it was attracting people in, even if they didn't know very much or care very much about the game. Yeah. It just goes to show. That's yeah. Right, yeah. Now, just as we were leaving the Shea Felix... Who do we bump into but the great Laurent Garnier, the former Elite One player, coach, and friend of the show? He has the t-shirt to prove it. I haven't seen Laurent in, geez, a couple of years. To be fair, that was the only time I met him. Regardless, it would be great to catch up. After all, he spent a year coaching Carcassonne. Oh, Laurent, what a pleasure to bump into you at Chez Felix. Bonjour. Bonjour, mes amis. Comment allez-vous? Come, come again? <laughs> Bonjour, mes amis. Comment uh-huh. allez-vous? means, hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Jeez, I was sweating bullets there for a second. <laughs> hey, Laurent, I'm curious, what was it like, a proud Perpignan man coaching Carcassonne, one of the biggest clubs in French rugby league, but also one of your great rivals through your playing career? What was that like? Look, Carcassonne have always been part of my life. I'll tell you a secret. The maiden name of my mother of my my grandfather is Carcassonne. Really? So so my full name would be Garnier Carcassonne. Is that right? So 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. My uh, grandfather and my mother were from Perpignan, but they've got the name of Carcassonne. So that was natural for me to, <laughs> to be in this city, you know? Yeah. And, and what's the, the level of expectation as a coach of Carcassonne? You know, such a, a famous club with a famous history and, of course, the club of Le Pipette Puy-Aubert. Puy-Aubert, who was a Catalan. Never right. forget that. He was, ah, okay. he was a Catalan man, born in Prince de Moyo. <laughs> Look, uh, they brought me from Australia because the, the new young president, Monnier, wanted to go in Ligue 1. He wants to do the same stuff than uh, the Toulouse Olympique uh, did. So... He wants a professional coach, so they gave me a full-time coaching contract. So I was, yeah, that was my job to do the development for the juniors and coaching the first grade and promote the game in Carcassonne and, of course, do a bit of competition with the USC, mm. who is the, the rugby union Pro D2 club. Mm -hmm. And we were the ASC 13. So very close, but very different. Mm. So, yeah, so that was a big project for Mathieu Monnier, the young president, new president of Carcassonne at the time. And, and did you enjoy it? You made the final of Elite One that year, is that right? Yeah, we made the final of the French Championship and uh, we lost in the semi-final of the Cup. I enjoyed it. That was my dream job. Mm. That was my dream job. And I learned so much. I learned so much by being a full-time coach coaching full-time player, but also like in the Q Cup or New South Wales Cup, uh, some people who were working have a day job, you know, so mm. that was sometimes a bit of a struggle, but I learned so much. So when I arrived, we won 10 games in a row, never happened before in the history of the club. So right. I thought I was the French Wayne Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and after I realized very quickly that I was actually not, you know what I mean? That was just Laurent Garnier from Perpignan and now from Winam, you know? But yeah. that was good. You know, if you don't have struggle, you don't learn. You don't, Absolutely. You don't learn something. So that, that was very good for me. And we were talking off air about your experience as a player and a coach of Carcassonne in this case. And we were talking about the experience that a lot of Australian players have in the French competition and the sort of information they give when they when they leave and they come home and they sort of say... You know, on the, on the magazine here, sometimes I read, uh, sometimes on, on Fox, I can see, oh yeah, in France, I play in France, and players drink wine before the games. Mm. I don't know which club they were, they were playing for, but in my club, we never drink wine before the game. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so that's a bit of a legend and to say, oh, the French with their food and their wine. After the game, beers, Ricard, more than wine, because only the, the Australian drink wine. Yeah. French, beer, and Ricard. That's right. it. Right. Okay. So, but of course, the level is not the same than the NRL or, or the Super League or even the But you know, that, that's quite serious. And at the time, we had some former NRL players like Paul Sironen, uh, Jason Laurie, Serdaris. Oh, ah, yeah, Jim Serdaris, yeah. You know? Yeah, so in a few other, we had Quentin Ponga at one point, mm, too, mm. playing for Paris and after Villeneuve. So we had a very, very good Australian player. So, uh, yeah, you could have prepared yourself well when you go on the field against guys like that. You know yeah. What I mean? yeah, fair enough. Well, Laurent, nice to bump into you here at Chez Felix. Uh, did you spend much time at the Chez Felix when you were involved with Carcassonne? Does a lot of club business get done here? That was actually my canteen. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. My office was not very far, so for the lunch, every time I tried to go over there. Did uh, you have a coach's discount? The thing is, I'll tell you something. Mr. Chabrol, the boss, Mr. Cabrol, when we won, I didn't pay a lot of meal. When we start to lose... <laughs> I had to I had to lose my, my credit card. That's how they roll over there. You know what I mean? Yeah, but you know what? Enough. 
you know what? Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Well, <laughs> good, good to see you here in this uh, famous rugby league institution. I've got to hit the road. Mike's calling, but uh, we'll catch up again in Perpignan. Okay. Beers on the beach. No worries. Okay. So we pay our bill at the Shea Felix, thank the owners for their rugby league hospitality, and we hit the road again. So another short drive, half an hour or so, this time to Lesignon. Now, does Lesignon have a distinct feel, or is it sort of the same sort of vibe as we're seeing in Carcassonne and Limoux? Lesignon is a different kind of place. It's about the same size as Limoux, and nowhere near as big as Carcassonne. But everything here is turns around rugby league, it seems. Mm-hmm. Because there is no other team that bears the town's name that is as important as the FCL, which has been in existence for over a century. Rugby Union first, of course. Mm-hmm. But there is no rugby union team here. And it has, a, for a small town, it has a big budget. And in France, most of the budgets for sporting clubs come from the municipality or the region. And it was well-placed, really, to get funds from the town hall because the mayor, for quite a while, was the former captain of Les Ignons, Michel Maïc, who was also captain of the France team when they beat the Aussies twice in 1978. So it's wheels within wheels, and I'm not not saying that, you know, there's anything out of place, but they were well thought of and well looked after by the municipality. The thing is, though, the stadium, which is a very old-fashioned type of stadium with a a little low stand along one side and a a fresco on the other side, had to be rebuilt after a a fire took place there two or three years ago. That fire took place after a a big celebration. I'm not saying that the two things were connected. It was just just coincidence, I I guess. But, yeah, it's a really, really old-fashioned type of stadium rebuilt in the old style right. and in fact one of the players who was successful with Les Ignons when they dominated the championship for four years from about 2008 or seven onwards was James Wynne who also played at Toulouse oh, yes, yeah. and he was the understudy to Andrew Johns at Newcastle I think Yes, and obviously didn't get a lot of game time there and, and came to France and, and stayed quite a long time before going back there you go, this game. Year, yeah, this year Sam Muller is there. He's one of the big recruits. And I think it'd be a big surprise if Carcassonne and Lesignol didn't face each other in at least one of the two finals this year. Okay, right. There you go, the tip. Carcassonne and Lesignol, local derby, that'll be something. Now, we are nearing the end of our journey. So from Lesignol, it's about maybe an hour or so trek to, to Perpignan and Surrounds, where you'll find local clubs, St. Esteve, which is the Catalan Dragons reserve team, and Pelot. Now, headquarters of Saint Esteve and Pelot are merely 25, half an hour apart. Would you consider Perpignan and Saint Esteve and Pelot to effectively be the same kind of area, or are they sort of distinctly different towns? Sort of paint us a picture of that part of the world. Yeah, they are different towns. Well, Pelot is a, is a village, really. I think mm-hmm. no more than about 4,000 people there. Saint Esteve tends to be regarded as a kind of suburb of Perpignan these days because it encroaches on it, although it has its separate municipality, it has its separate administration. And Saint-Estève was a separate club at one point as well. When the two clubs merged in 2000, 
Mm. On the initiative of Bernard Guache, the current chairman of uh, the Dragons, okay. both clubs were in financial difficulties. Tres Catalans was the senior club and had been in existence since the start of French Rugby League. Saint-Esther started in the early 60s and there was a great rivalry between the two, but they were running themselves into the ground because they just didn't have the finances any longer to, to support themselves. Mm. And then the, the proposal came around to, to merge the two clubs, which they did, and eventually they came out as the Catalan Dragons. But all around this area, you've got lots of little clubs. Palo replaced Pia. Pia is oh, another yeah. little village. The Pia Donkeys. Um, Pia was champion up to 2014, and then they dropped out of their own volition. Right. Because they, well, it's a long story, but they were unhappy with the, with the federation and they were unhappy with the money that they were going to be getting from the local authorities. So they thought rather than make any compromise, they'd stop it playing altogether, which is what they did, sadly. Wow. And then you've got other little teams around, like elite two teams, like Bao and Le Bacares and so on. Because you're getting very close to the Mediterranean here, and some of them are actually on the coast, like Le Bacares. Wow. But, yeah, Saint-Estève, Tres Catalans, the Dragons Reserves, still, still are a few Aussies down there in charge, like Justin Murphy is the coach of the team, yeah. who was a Catalan Dragon himself, mm. the winger, and Greg Bird, um, who is still there as well, yeah, and yeah. had a big impact uh, with the Dragons and has, has stayed around as well. Yeah. So still that influence there. Debbie is a real hub of the game, as yeah. as you would imagine. Mm. Yeah, well, fascinating stuff, Mike. We've now been to each of the 10 clubs. It's been a really insightful journey. One more question before we go. Out of all the, the 10 grounds that each of the, the clubs play at, is there a favourite of yours that um, you love going to that, I don't know, has the the most picturesque vista or is just a, a nice place to watch rugby league? Well, actually, several of them have a pleasant vista. Carcassonne, you're not very far from the city, the, the walled city, mm-hmm. even though it's got a running track around it, which I don't really like. Mm. Lesignan is a cosy little stadium in, as they call it, the English style because it doesn't have an athletics track around it. Limoux is similar too. Yeah, it would be hard to pick one out actually, but they all have their qualities. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Mike, you have been the uh, the perfect driving companion. Thanks as always for your help. (laughs) And hey, while I've got you, on behalf of the Rugby League Universe, thanks for giving us the gift of your two books, The Forbidden Game and The Struggle and the Daring. Mike Rylance, merci beaucoup. Thank you very much for coming along with me. That, that was a lot of fun. Merci à toi, Jono. Thank you. Well, Mike and I have bid our fond farewells. It was a real pleasure having his company. What a font of knowledge he is about the region and how rugby league intersects with it. Thanks, Mike. Oh, you're several. But I think I might spend a little more time in Catalan country. 
When we visited a couple of years ago, we only spent a day or so in this charming part of the world. So here's my chance to make up for what I consider was a lost opportunity. I'll catch up with hometown boy Laurent Garnier in a second, but first, I see a Catalonian flag fluttering, and that can only mean Steve Brady is in the house. You've come across the juicy morsels that Catalan media serves up on a daily basis on the socials, right? Well, that's Steve. Was I meant to divulge that? Anyway, I'm glad I bumped into him. Many things I want to ask, including his thoughts on the difference between the French and British rugby league crowds. Uh, local neck of the woods, we live in the hills in the Pyrenees, just uh, above a little village called Palos del Vidro. It's a poor little village, you know, it's, it's, a very, it's a very poor stretch of the country, this. You know, it's, it's got historical difficulties. And rugby league thrives here. You know, maybe that's the mentality where you're up against it in life and you just want to be in a sport that's up against it because, let's face it, rugby union is king in France. And, and this maverick disposition that Catalan people have where they'll pick a fight with, <laughs> with their mm. own shadow uh, <laughs> because they've been put on up for, for centuries. Yeah. And I think that manifests itself in rugby league here. And uh, the, the shape of rugby league around it is very small clubs in small towns, but fiercely passionate and fiercely rival. And the difference between, I think, this level of rugby league here and a similar level back over in England it is that fierce local pride you know mm. it's a beautiful place but it is a little bit behind the clock you know they really don't tend to push the envelope too much they have church money so much that they're not into symbols and new cars and things like that they're quite happy with the rural life yeah. and I think the pride that they feel in their own village and playing for their own village is, is ferocious and that's the thing that I picked up on immediately I went to some friends of ours that come on you've got to come and see Palo Broncos didn't really fancy it at first but it's an incredible club we've got to know the owners and we have some really special times there and it's possibly the best years of my rugby league watching life yeah wow and you mentioned your team is the Palo Broncos and they're obviously yeah. very close to, in terms of geography, to another Elite One club, St. Estev Catalan, which is the reserve team of the Catalan Dragons. What is the relationship between those two clubs? How, how do they compare? Obviously, big brother, little brother sort of thing? Yeah, on a different level. It's like the Manchester United and the Millwall of the Premiership. It's, yeah. They are opposite ends of the same spectrum. Uh, a little bit of respect, self-respect, because there is that patriotism of the Catalan. They're carrying the Catalan flag with them, playing the same colours, etc. And the club's work with each other to some extent but yeah, at the same time you know you don't rugby league there's no friendly rugby league at all mm. so there is a derby feel when they play each other and uh, they were at Centre Stev three weeks ago and it erupted into a, a mass brawl uh, you know nothing too serious but it just the passion no, they, they cannot control it it's it, that fierce Latin Catalan whatever heat they got in the soul it, it comes out particularly Centre Stev Palo game it, it is always a, a pressure point and it's great fun to watch and I'm sure the players really enjoy playing it but they don't have to put some, some lump into it so but the relationships can be I think good there certainly are battles on a commercial scale because mm. obviously the Centre Stev are the reserve team of Catalan Dragons under the wing of Bernard White so they're okay Palo Broncos you know they've had a succession of new owners they really are particularly issue with the Covid struggling and they're launching appeals left right and centre I think they get through mm. but uh, it's really really difficult yeah. so the, the comparison is even though it's in one small elite one league there's a massive difference between centre step and Palo yeah now you talk about how you enjoy going to see Palo Broncos games it's one of the highlights of your rugby league viewing career so what is a, a typical yeah. Palo game day for you are there any places you like to visit for lunch or dinner what's the vibe like at the ground as well I'm talking yeah. in non-COVID times You've got, uh, they've got a great deal down in Palo there. The setting of the club is beautiful. You've got the backdrop of the Pyrenees. The games are always 3pm on the Sunday. And we'll get there two hours before the game. 
and they'll cook a pre-match meal. If it's wet, you're going to be inside the, uh, it's a porter cupboard really, but it's the cook's kind of function room, covered in St. Helens flags and Wigan flags and Featherston rope scars and all sorts. There's rugby league crazy. All the ex-players are in there, all the old guys, all the old women, and they'll come out with a huge tray of lamb. They'll just chop the whole lamb up, you know, with every, every bit of it on <laughs> a little plate there, and we'll all just share it together. It's the most sociable and uh, a wonderful occasion to get out. And if the sun's shining, it's not me, it's They've got tables beneath the trees for shade, and it's just the gallons of wine. It's incredible. Uh, so that, the game itself, you know, the, the characters that are in there are incredible. You know, the, the oldest of all, full of kids, all wearing palo colours. You've got your friend punk rockers, anarchists and communists and all these guys. And it's just fantastic. You've got a little bar at the end of the ground where after the game we all stay for as long as you can as the sun sets over Carnegie. And it's, it genuinely is yeah. quite a, a moving experience. I love it. Fantastic. And so the, the crowd really gets into it and, and gets behind their team when the going gets tough? Yeah, as I said, it's this kind of passionate nature. You know, as English people, we're taught to withhold our feelings and withhold our emotions. It's the total opposite here. You, you just got to let it go. And the players are expressing themselves on the pitch, but obviously the crowd's a bit screaming and shouting going on. But it's all part of the rich tapestry, you know. It, the difference, you know, you look at French stadiums and French sports events, people can smoke and drink and wander around as freely as they want to and let the herd out. It was back in England when we used to watch in the latter stages before we left at DW Stadium, we'd be like, don't sit there, don't stand up, you can't drink that, you can't smoke in the ground, you can't do this, you can't wander around. Whereas over here, it's like going back 20 years, it's brilliant that you've got total freedom. But that in itself enables people to be a bit more relaxed and a bit more fun. So it is a bit erum scurum. It can get a bit over the top sometimes, but we love all that. that. I think the game's lacking a little bit of passion sometimes. It's been drummed out of us. Mm. And it's so refreshing for us to come back to this feeling of rugby league in the raw. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Rugby league in the raw, I love it. Now, which parts of the region, the, the broader region around where you live, do you recommend for a short trip, maybe away from the beaten track that rugby league fans tend to take when they're in Perpignan for a Super League match? Yeah, the area around Perpignan is stunningly beautiful. You know, everything is overshadowed by Canagoo, the Mount Canagoo that's covered in snow at the moment. It's absolutely stunning, but we're lucky enough to get 20 degrees in the last few days. So it's lovely and warm. We can be on the beach as well as snows over us. The places that I'd recommend, the very famous one down here, famous to us, I suppose. Some people may not know, a little coastal town called Collior. Mm-hmm. Absolutely beautiful with a bell tower church. There's stunning vineyards above it. Castle's left, right, centre. Absolutely medieval, and the whole region's been fought over by Moors and Romans and Cathars and Catalans for so, so many years that you, you see relics and historical monuments. It's absolutely, it's Collier, it's the jewel. There's a little region called the Cote Vermey, which is the Red Coast, the Crimson Coast, and Collier, the jewel. So I would suggest that. And then Castle Nou, uh, Castle Nordre, just for a taste of the, the local cuisine, which is uh, Castle Nordre is the world heritage site of uh, Cachoulet which is a kind of sloppy stew with a, a creamy, porky duck. It, it looks terrible, but it's one of the nicest things you'll ever eat. So Catherine Maudry, rugby league country as well, so it's, uh, it's well worth a visit. There are lots and lots of visits. And don't forget, you're so close to the Spanish border. So you're straight into Catalonia, Girona, the scene of the Game of Thrones, etc. There's so much around here. It's beautiful. Yeah, well, fantastic tips. Thanks for those, Steve. Now... Do you have any sort of common tips that you give to visitors to the south of France? Is there anything specific uh, that you think people should know? Uh, just be careful when you're driving on the roads because they're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Catalan around here. 
Yeah. But it's, so you've got the Catalan passion and you've got this French, let's say, fair attitude where anything goes and nothing seems to bother them. They, the two collide and, <laughs> and, and the roads can be a little bit hurry sometimes. There's no indication and the, the, the speed limit is ignored. I mean, every time they put a speed camera up or down, they burn it down or rip it down. So they're, they're very anti-authority, anti-government around here. It's that Catalan nature again. If you do get a car, it's a beautiful place to travel around and just keep your eyes and ears about you. You've got to be aware of the opening times. They're like a long lunch. Everything stops for between 12 and 2. Mm-hmm. You can hear the crunching and munching of the Frenchies everywhere. So if you want anything done, don't think about doing anything about meeting lunch between 12 and 2. <laughs> and after that, you know, the place comes alive in the evening, or it used to before COVID. Uh, and it's, it's just a pretty special place to be. Fantastic. Well, Steve... You have definitely whet the appetite of myself and, and many others, I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining our virtual road trip of the Elite One Towns and Grounds. No worries, Jonathan. Thank you. And here is Florent Garnier on home turf, his chest bursting with pride. Who bad to ask about what the town of Perpignan is really like? Okay, Laurent, here we are in Perpignan. Now, as a local, someone who loves his home city, how would you describe it to you know your new friends in Brisbane, people who don't know much about Perpignan? What do you tell them to expect? The thing is, if they like rugby union and rugby league, they will know straight away Perpignan. That's a small town the size of, of Toowoomba, you know, mm-hmm. with them, but that's well known in terms of football and rugby because that's one of the few times in the world to get two professional teams in the both courts. Mm-hmm. After that, you just have to Google the beaches of Canin, you know, in the beach club and stuff like that. And straight away, people start to say, oh, what are you doing here? Why are you here in Australia? That's so good, you know, just 200 case from Barcelona and not far from the French Riviera and blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, that's a very nice place to live and to come from. Yeah, yeah beautiful town. Now, I was chatting to Mike Rylance as we made our way to Perpignan and Surrounds and he touched on that fateful merger of the bitter rivals of the region, uh, Tres Catalan and Saint Esteve, which became UTC Catalan and eventually the Catalan Dragons. Can you take us back to the time of the merger? Because you were there. You know, what was the feeling like when the two playing groups got together? Because th- those clubs were bitter rivals, weren't they? Oh, we hate each other. <laughs> we hate each other with passion. <laughs> so, as a Tres Catalan player, the last game of the 2000 season was the cup final we lost against Villeneuve, who was at the time the big club. You know? mm-hmm. That was a very well-kept secret by Bernard Gouache and his uh, entourage. The merger was a, yeah. a well-kept secret? Well-kept secret. And mm. just one week before the start of the pre-season, we start to hear some noise, but we start <laughs> joking. We were fighting in the semi-final of the cup. <laughs> Just two months ago, so that's, that's impossible. And I remember I had a call from coach. Said, oh yeah, we uh, we train in Saint Esteve. We got a new club. <laughs> Are you kidding or what? <laughs> so no, no, no. Yeah, six uh, six o'clock uh, Tuesday. See you there. <laughs> what? <laughs> and the first training was you know very quiet. The first yeah. training was very 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 quiet, and we we didn't know if that was serious or what. You know, but yeah. you know what? After a few training. Rugby league was better than, than anything, and once we actually understood that that was it, mm. we have no no coming back. But I know, I know, I should not say that, but I know the fight in the board for the, to choose the color of the jersey yeah. was a big, big point because the Catalan people didn't want any blue on the white jersey. They said, no way, no way. <laughs> and I remember, I cannot tell you his name, but he's a, he's a very famous sponsor of the club, of Tres Catalan. Mm. And now of the Catalans, he said to me, Laurent, 
we will put the blue under the armpit and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big deal 20 yeah. years ago. Now. Wow, yeah. Now, what are some of your favorite memories of playing in the Elite One, you know, the premier division of French rugby league for so long? Because you played from, what, the late 80s to the early 2000s. You were part yeah, of the yeah, scene for yeah. a long time. Yeah, uh, something I don't miss is the travel. Yeah. If you are from Perpignan and you need to play in Villeneuve, that's terrible. If you need to play in Avignon, oh! <laughs> and I finished my career in, in the second division where Paris was in the league. So we oh. have to take the night train yeah. to play in Paris. And at the time, they had Quentin Bonga and Mark Cross in their team. Right. That was not a pleasant trip, you know. So <laughs> in Australia, that's all about rehabilitation and look after your body after the game. Just after the game, the first hour after the game is very important. Not, not in France. You cannot look after your body if you spend uh, six hours at least in the bus, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and hitting on the, just on the side of, of the highway. So, yeah, I don't miss that. I don't miss that. But that's part of, of French rugby because the club in the south are a bit far apart sometimes. If you are from Avignon or Villeneuve or Saint-Gaudens, you travel a lot, a lot. Mm. And what about your favorite memories, your favorite moments? Oh, the win. The win. Oh, the, the thing is, in France, and that's a bit the problem of, of the French people in, in rugby and in rugby league, is if you win, you are the best in the world. Yeah. If you lose... You are the worst. We don't have a middle ground on that, you know. Yeah. So what I can imagine is uh, when we play in Jean Lafont with Tres Catalan and coming back to the sheds, and, and that was like a party in the shed, mm. you know. You got all the sponsors, all the fans, all the kids. Uh, sometimes you got some beers, you know, when <laughs> that was a big game. You know, in the, in the mid-90s, 80s, of course, that when I start to play mid-90s and early 2000s, we had some tough game. And i tell you why, because we had all these great Australian and, and Kiwi imports. Mm. So the games, you know, the games were rough. So the, the party afterwards were rough. Too. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Work hard, play hard, sounds like. Yeah, that, yeah, that was it. There you go. And did you notice a difference in quality or an improvement or a decline in the standard of the elite one between your playing days and, and your stint coaching, you know, a, a decade later? What I could say about that is because now we got two professional teams, all the talents, are attracted and dragged by these two professional clubs who are Toulouse Olympique yeah. and Catalan Dragons. So, of course, we got less talent. And now we don't have big imports like the Hydro Kissini, you know, from the Warriors, mm. Paul Cyrone, all these big names don't come anymore. We've got only players from the State League who, who are good players, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. But we don't have these big names. On the other side, for a young French player, that's easier to express himself mm -hmm. in the league now because you have less danger in defense because the, in the 90s we had very mean player which you know, who really want to enjoy you. Uh, Were you one of those, Laurent? Uh, I try. I try <laughs> <laughs> when I was a bit older because I was not fast enough so I tried to do some, some damage. But at one point I say, okay, I need to stop that because that's not working. So <laughs> but yeah, that's what I can say. So that's a good thing and, and a bad thing. But yeah, when you got the players, when, when they grow up, when they are a bit uh, skillful and a bit good, straight away they want to play for big clubs. They don't want to stay yeah. in elite one. So that's why sometimes the level is a bit uneven, you know, between the team. After, when we arrive in the finals, semi-final, final, you can, you can have a good level of football, but we miss a bit, you know, this uh, roughness. 
because that's sometimes that seems like because I watch from Australia on, on internet, I watch some games, mm. and sometimes that's like a bit like uh, kids playing against kids, you yeah. know. So that's fast, they, that's good, they are skillful, but as I say, to, to learn, you need to struggle. So mm-hmm. I think that the French young player needs to, to struggle a, a bit more. Yeah, very interesting. Well, Laurent, thanks for, for taking the time to show us around a bit and, and thanks for wearing the I'm a Progressive Rugby League friend of the show t-shirt for the occasion too. Still fits perfectly. Thank you very much, Laurent yes. Garnier. No worries. I love it. Progressive Rugby League. Goodness gracious me, we've made it to the end. I am kind of exhausted, but have loved every freaking second. I want to thank our extremely generous guests for taking the time out of their schedules to show us around the place and give us a glimpse of life as a rugby league-loving French person. And of course, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for riding along and making it all the way to the end. Hope you got something out of it. I most certainly did. Until we next meet somewhere in rugby league dreamland, rugby league hobby... And see ya.